Hi, this is Ben Swinburne. Um, please note that all important disclosures, including personal holdings disclosures and Morgan Stanley disclosures, appear uh, on the Morgan Stanley Public website at morganstanley.com slash research disclosures or at the registration desk. And we're really excited to welcome back to the conference uh, Netflix and welcome for the first time uh, the man to my left, Spence Newman, CFO. Spence, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Obviously, thanks a lot for... going on this week. I, uh, yeah, a lot going on. I feel like hopefully I am a leg up because I showed up in person relative to our board member who just was the voice of God. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, hey, so I think we have hopefully, a, before we get going, just a video for folks who are maybe a little less familiar with Netflix about what we've been up to and where we're headed. Okay. Roll tape. This is what I pursued as my purpose. Because I wanted to hear the whole story. I wanted to know my story, your story. Felt like I needed to understand as much of it as I could in order to understand myself. Now, who was I? Where was I going? Where were we going together as a people? I studied and I played and I worked to be a part of that story in this place and in this time. But most of all, I wanted to be able to tell that story to you. prepared to take one for the team. Oh, 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 oh my God! This is incredible. I'm a massive fan of yours. Try not to cry. Try not to lose it. So what happens next? What do we do next? is not yet written. fired up, not the least of which because I'm a Jersey kid and Bruce is playing the voice over there, but um, but also just for kind of where we are and, and where we're headed, hopefully it gives you a sense. We're, we're about telling the stories of um, from anywhere in the world, the, the greatest stories come from anywhere and, 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 and can be enjoyed anywhere, and that's, that's a, a lot of what that's about is that storytelling. So anyway, That's sorry. great, yeah. And if you just learned what Netflix is from that video, you need to step outside and people <laughs> need to talk to you. Um, well, thank you for that, Spence. I wanted to ask you, uh, it's been, I guess, what, a little over a year now I yeah, think, yeah. since you've been at the company. Um, how has your role and your focus evolved over that period of time? What are your priorities in your seat looking out over 2020? Uh, well, it's definitely evolved a lot. I mean, um, we try to get folks up the learning curve quickly at the company, but I think it was day eight when I was on my first earnings call. So so my head is hopefully spinning a little bit less. and uh, And... What I'm focused on is, is a lot of what, what you, you saw on that screen and how do we, how do I, and I in my role, help support the company in terms of where we're going. So one, in terms of 
Um, you know, we're trying to get better with content every day, and that's not just the creative executives, but how do we as a, as a, as a uh, finance and, and operations team support the, those initiatives, whether it's the metrics we look at to gauge the effectiveness and impact of our content to, you know, how we support our, our creative teams and, and product teams around the world in scaling, uh, you know, our, our production capabilities globally. Um, so that's one. Two is just how do we support just scaling our business globally. So you see in our, in our business, uh, you know, 90% plus of our subscriber growth recently has been coming from outside of the U.S. and the EMEA, PAC, and LATAM regions. And so what are the implications for how do we successfully scale our organization, not just our finance team, but our company? And then with all of that, how do we deliver on continuing to grow a, a not, and build on a um, you know, what's a healthy business today, but making it healthier and stronger over time. So delivering on our business objectives of, of growing our memberships, growing our revenue, scaling our profit margins and overall profitability, and now moving to improve our cash flow trajectory over time. So spending a lot of time on focusing on, on those business deliverables. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll dive into all of those topics in this okay. conversation. But before we do, I want to ask you something that, I don't know, I don't get to ask a lot on these stages, which is about the culture of the company. Yeah. In particular, the freedom and responsibility sort of manifest that Netflix has, which I interpret as you delegate a lot and let people make their own decisions and sort of run on their own, but obviously correct me if I'm wrong. And the question is, given how much bigger the company is today than it was when it was obviously founded, how does that, uh, how is that a successful operating strategy when you're producing the amount of content the company is producing. I mean, yeah. I, it just seems like it gets more and more challenging the bigger and bigger you guys get globally, particularly on the content production side. Yeah, it's fair. So I'd say it's actually less about the overall, you know, the challenge of, of our, to our culture from overall size as much as how the company is evolving in terms of the number of new people and growth of our headcounts. So we're still relatively small. We're only about 8,000 employees, but we've been growing a lot over the past few years. So as new employees are coming on board and also the changing complexion and mix of our employee base as we are more and more global and local in that global growth. So as we, as that, um, as, as we, as we change in that regard, how do we ensure that um, our culture remains healthy, that those new employees understand what freedom and responsibility and judgment is all about, um, and so you know, the, you know, for us, the good news is one: it, it is not just a you know culture memo that's online or on on the you know on a hall, the hallway uh, message board. It is something we live and breathe every day. Um, we are very focused on um, continuing to communicate and learn from it, and, and it's also not static. It is something that evolves and. Purposefully, we're trying to get better all the time to evolve for that changing mix of our employee base and the changing nature of our of our company over time. So um, it is something that we focus on a lot. We're trying to get better all the time. And it, you know, the other thing is um, it, a lot about that. Uh, what makes that work is we try to lead across the company with radical transparency and context. And when we do that, it helps a freedom and responsibility and judgment culture. Scale because if we if we provide that information, we provide that context, we provide that transparency, then we give us our, the best. And we're not um, so kind of um, uh, restricted by our, our past, but that just informs our future, and we continue to build on. And I think it kind of lends itself to a healthy, growing culture. Got it. Thank you. That that's helpful. I want to uh, step back and ask you a little bit about the subscriber opportunity ahead of the business. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly those who are maybe more 
bearish on the stock would argue that the business is maturing. You know, your net ads obviously are still healthy, but they were down a tick last year versus the prior year. We also can look at some of your regional numbers like EMEA and APAC and see, you know, penetration is still quite low in those regions. How, how do you, from where you sit, articulate the global opportunity for Netflix sort of sitting here right now in early 2020? Sure. I mean, we look at it as uh, we're in many ways just getting started. Our long-term opportunity is, is kind of big and unchanged. We talked about that a bit on the last earnings call. You know, the good news is that uh, around, the perp uh, around the world, people love film and television entertainment. That's pretty universal. Uh, there's, depending on how you look at addressable market, whether it's, um, you know, we're not in China, but outside China, about 800 million broadband households, about 800 million pay TV households. We're at about 167 million paying members at the end of last quarter, um, ranging from, you know, a little over 50% penetrated in the U.S. to less than 10% penetrated in the APAC region. So we still think we've got just a long way to go. Um, to build a company a multiple of our current size so long as we keep getting better. So we're trying to get better at um, get better content, better product, and uh, every day, if we get a little bit better every day, we think there's a long way to go. Are the things the company has to get better at and execute on different today than they were, you know, two, three years ago? Has the, has, is the world changing rapidly enough that the keys to success are, are, are constantly changing? Well, it, it, you know, there are subtleties by market, but the model is pretty similar in that it, yeah. it starts with a great content experience, that content market fit, and a great product experience. And, and then obviously being able to reach those consumers through, through great marketing and, and, and powerful conversations. So we're trying to get better on the content and product side every day. It's, I mean, hopefully you see that we're you know, we're probably most mature in English language scripted television. We've been doing that on, you know, in terms of Netflix originals for over six years now. Um, there's other categories of content where we're much newer in terms of our local non-English originals around the world or animated film where we, um, we we're just kind of starting to scale that business, and you saw some of that in the fourth quarter of last year. So I think we're getting – and then, um, you know, certain parts of the world are just more uh, attuned to – local and regional content. So I think we're getting better and better at that content market fit. We're getting better and better at hopefully at, 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 um, at reducing the friction and providing that consumer empowerment that's so important in terms of the product experience. Even little, seemingly little things like the, you know, the top 10 list that we rolled out at late February to you know, nearly 100 countries around the world. It's just one more way for, for our consumers and uh, to, to get a sense of what folks are watching, which is important to some as they're making their, their content choices and decisions. So that, that similarity runs through all of these regions and countries, but we're at a different place in, in each market. Yeah. I want to keep going on the market front, but since you brought up the top ten list, um, yeah. do we assume something like that has been tested all over the place by you guys? And so if you're actually rolling it out globally, it means it's, it's, it likely to, has a positive impact on the business? Well, yeah, we're a test and learn culture for sure, yeah. um, and and so you can assume with this also we were we were doing testing. I don't know if it's all around the world, but certainly we'll pick some markets and yeah. and um, you know it's not always an obvious clear answer, but you see signals and then we build on those signals. So again, this I don't think there's anything that is a silver bullet. Sure, but this is just when your people have a lot of different ways to discover content. We're trying to satisfy a lot of consumer tastes. Um, you know, both within the family, across, you know, points in time in their life cycle, even just points in time in the day of the week and the night, and, 
and where their headspace is. So this is just one more way to do that. Yeah. Uh, is it helping you? I, I still haven't started Love is Blind, even though it's sitting there at number three, I think. I can't remember the exact ranking. but um, Yeah, I was watching it this weekend. I'm about four episodes in. So. Don't spoil. Yeah, for the, guilty for the pleasure. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., your new regional disclosure, I think, has helped people think about the global opportunity more. Uh, so thank you for that. But the, the, the U.S. is still a focus area. What do you see in this market? You mentioned English language is your most mature in general, content-wise, but is there still room to grow in the U.S. when you look out over the next several years? And is, is North America a good leading indicator for us to think about the long-term in other regions? Well, um, look, I guess starting with your last point, if it, if it is a leading indicator, that's kind of a good thing, right, because we're 55% penetrated yeah. roughly in the U.S., and if we take that out to the rest of the world and you kind of do the math on that and when it would – you know, what we talk about is the addressable market, and you're at a four to five hundred million plus paying member business, which is a pretty good place to be. Um, but we're not, uh, we're also not conceding that we've hit, you know, some sort of a ceiling in the U.S. I mean, even if we look at Q4 of this past year, we grew in the U.S. Uh, you know, one, we grew the top line considerably, right? So yeah. we accelerated revenue growth for our company overall and, and in the U.S. Um, our member growth, you know, we, we had our First, we had um, quite a bit of pricing growth in the U.S. last year. We also had some new competition that launched that you all are aware of. And even with that in Q4, we grew our members. Now, we didn't grow as much as we did in the prior year, but we had member growth and we had 17% year-over-year ARPU growth. So there's, there's not many businesses that can grow their member, member single digits and grow pricing in the quarter year-over-year year, nearly 20%. So it's not surprising that there's some level of price elasticity that sure. we saw in the fourth quarter. Um, but if you also think about a, an indicator of the overall health of our business, ultimately we grow when we satisfy our members and, you know, we provide more member satisfaction and, and a good indication for that is member viewing. And what we talked about in Q4 is that even in the U.S., in Q4, with all, you know, that noise in the system, that member engagement grew year over year at similar levels to the prior year. So I think it's a good sign for us that, you know, at least encouraging that we still have runway to grow in the U.S. and that's what we're going after. Great. Uh, when, when investors ask me what I think where to look for proof points that you guys can scale over the world, I often point to Latin America, and your new disclosure, again, is helpful there. The, the, the sub-base essentially tripled from 15 to 18. Yeah. What, what, and I know you're new, relatively new to the company, but what can you take from that region that helps you inform your opportunities in other there may be emerging market markets. What's similar and maybe what's different about Latin America versus other places that you guys are earlier in today? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of comes back to what we said before, that it's, um, it is that combination of content market fit, product experience, um, enabling our consumers through the product and, and reducing that friction in the marketplace and then being able to kind of reach those audiences. And we've had some more time to work on it in Latin America because it was our, you know, of the earliest markets we went into uh, after the U.S., so we've had some more time to figure it out. It also it happens to be a market where um, uh, content travels into the market uh, in a pretty healthy way, so that that accelerated some of that content market fit. But but the, the general um, approach is the same. It's just that we're earlier days in some markets, and some markets, um, you know, there is a bit more. Uh, you know, learnings in terms of getting the content right um, and uh, and scaling over time, but it's 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 kind of more of the same. It's just uh, somewhat localized to each region. Okay. So Western content travels where? Yeah. Well, in that region. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
The other thing you guys have done in a lot of areas, I think to some extent Latin America, is leverage third-party partnerships, distribution. I mean, that yeah. goes back all the way to the gaming consoles. Um, you're constantly doing more. I think you've got a robust relation with Comcast, uh, one that was Sky that has even become more significant recently. How do you look at the value of those partnerships in terms of the trade-offs between ARPU and Churn and SAC and all the, the good things that drive the model? Yeah, we're, we're uh, I mean, partnerships are, are a meaningful part of our business. They always have been, even from the, you know, kind of the earliest days of device partnerships yeah. and, and kind of the Netflix button on the remote control. And they've continued to evolve over time with now more kind of bundled, cable bundle partnerships and even, uh, um, you know, uh, mobile partnerships. And at the end of the day, what we're looking for is, is this is this an effective means to, um, accelerate our growth in a market in a healthy way. So we look at um, the ability to drive growth and then the impact on the trade-off, whether it's cannibalizing other means of access to our consumer. Um, and, and then also, is it, is it um, healthy growth, in turn, particularly if it's bundled into an offering? You know, we want to make sure that there's healthy engagement with our consumer and it's not bundled in a way that kind of miss, um, if folks may be getting the product without um, you know, being cognizant of it, if you will, because we want it to be healthy growth. So those are the trade-offs. We're obviously doing it in a way where we maintain um, the Netflix kind of branding and connection. So uh, we think that's important to us in terms of the delivery of the service, and we'll continue to build on it. I mean, um, I think these, old, these partnerships will continue to grow. You've probably seen some of those partnership launches um, more recently, you know, in Latin America last quarter, um, continue to build on our Samsung mobile partnership with mm -hmm. Um, some of the, you know, announcements recently in terms of some of the content that can be accessed and messaged to consumers that is uh, bonus content that helps, again, market and message and reach the consumer. So we'll continue to evaluate, but, but it's another, um, it's a helpful kind of complementary way to, to reach uh, more of our members. Does the fact we're seeing a lot of the newer streaming launches follow your lead? We, Disney Plus is going to be on Canal Plus in France, and um, uh, I think there's some commentary about Deutsche Telekom today. Does the fact that everyone's sort of starting to kind of partner up change how you think about both the opportunities and the risks, or whether you're in a more of a rush to get these things set up? The partnerships? Yeah. Not really. I mean, the, the uh, you know, there, the media has always been a competitive space, one. And two, it, the one thing that, that is, I guess, maybe sometimes overlooked a little bit is that our, our, you know, we're in the originals business. So with these, with our, our future is Netflix originals, and hopefully you, you see that in the service. So to access our content, um, you have to um, you have to subscribe to Netflix somehow, whether it's directly or through a partnership. And so as long as we provide that value and we create value to our partners, we, that's a good business for us and for them, and so that's what we're focused on. So yes, there's others that may be distributed on platforms, but we think. Um, Again, there's very complementary deals to be done, and as I said, we'll continue to build on our existing partnerships, whether it be in Sky, with Sky, or with um, Samsung, or others around the world. Yeah. Okay, great. Let, let's shift gears a bit to pricing, which yeah. is, in many ways, I felt like sort of the dominant discussion of last year, at least other than competition. You guys have talked about elevated churn in the U.S. post your price increase, but at the same time, you also just highlighted that revenue growth accelerated. So. I think I know the answer, but when you look back at last year, anything you would have done differently around the price increase uh, and any takeaways as you guys move forward? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think we would have done anything differently. I mean, we, we obviously debated a lot, but overall the, price, the pricing moves were great, were very healthy for our business. I mean, uh, we, we talk, you, you see in our numbers, we are, our streaming revenue globally grew, I think, 34% year over year, uh, which was accelerated revenue growth. Now, we did see some price elasticity, but our, our pricing philosophy hasn't changed, which is we start with the consumer, start with delivering that member satisfaction, um, and increasing value to the consumer over time. And if we do that and we do that right, then we think occasionally we can, we can, uh, we can increase our prices and, and then drive that, you know, what we think is, is, is a great virtuous cycle where the bulk of that increased revenue, we, you know, we're reinvesting into the business. So you can see in our financials, roughly half of our revenue is reinvested into content and then, and then also obviously marketing and product. But we're trying to create good, um, you know, you know, amazing experiences for our members and spend their subscriber dollars responsibly. And that, that's what you're seeing. Um, and so we'll continue to do that where there's kind of gradual pricing over time. It doesn't change our philosophy. We're trying to revenue maximize for the long term. But first and foremost, we're trying to deliver more and more value for our members and then, as they say, kind of price into it to build a healthy business. I don't know how much you'd want to share with us for competitive reasons, but, but I'd be curious at least at a high level, how you guys decide, you know, when to implement a price increase in a certain market at a certain time. Is it driven by content strength? You mentioned it starts with the consumer, but that could be analyzed in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we are, um, you know, one, we're, we have some level, we have price changes pretty continuously throughout the system because we are engaging. So around the world, we obviously are in so many different countries. So um, it's not like all of a sudden we, we, Take a look at it. Now it's time to kind of turn the pricing on yeah. uh, across the world, um, and 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 then again, it really does start with that consumer satisfaction. And and you're right. There's a number of ways to gauge that, but one is just is we're looking, you know, again at our key metrics in terms of what's happening with member growth, what's happening with acquisition, retention, and member engagement. And if those are on a healthy track, then you know we'll think about what's the right time to adjust pricing in the market. And it's, so it's part science, it's part judgment based on the field, the quality of the offering and how that's continuing to scale. And you can see it's not, it's not purely scientific. So when we look at markets anywhere from 12, 18, 24 month cycles, it's not like there's a specific timing cycle. So right. we're, we're trying to gauge when it, when it both looks right in the metrics and feels right based on where the product is. You guys also have some mobile only plans uh, in the market, in some markets. What yeah. are you guys trying to accomplish there? So again, it's, it's um, you know, what we're trying to do across the board is uh, provide, uh, you know, access to the Netflix service in a way that appeals to you know, various consumer uh, tastes and, 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 and needs. And so we try to differentiate um, while also keeping our choices simple. And so there's some folks who, you know, you've seen we went from a single price uh, model to basically three different tiers uh, a few years back. And now this is, you know, one more way to kind of increase that accessibility to the Netflix product, but do it in a way where, one, first and foremost, we're trying to build a healthy business and one that maximizes revenue for the long term. So if we're introducing a mobile offering, it's because we believe that it's revenue accretive to us, right. meaning that there's, there's a trade-off there where there's more um, volume in terms of subscriber acquisition, maybe better for retention, but overall net-net relative to not launching that offering, we believe it's, it's good for us in the, in the medium and long term for sure in terms of the revenue opportunity in the market. And if we can do that in a way that accelerates growth, 
has more people experiencing our our product and our service and talking about it in a positive way, that's that's a good thing. Gotcha. Uh, I want to shift gears to content spending and sort of how you think about efficiency on content. You spent, I don't know how many years at Disney, but a lot. Almost 17, yeah, yeah. a while, yeah. So, so at Disney, at least back then, you know, monetizing a piece of IP was a little bit more clear. There was specific revenues. At Netflix, yeah. it's less. You know, you've got a whole platform. So I've asked Ted this many times, but how do you guys figure out how much to spend on content in a given year, five-year period? How do you think about content efficiency, and is that changing at all as you guys, you know, as they grow up, but, you know, get bigger? Yeah, sure. I'd be curious <laughs> if Ted's answer has to go back to, to those to see if we're on point. Um, first, it, as, as said to a number of you in the audience, it, it, is, it sounds a little simple, but, but we do, part of this is we come at it based on what can we, so long as we can spend in a healthy way, how much can we afford to spend? So, you know, I guess the step back is the starting point is we believe we've got a lot of opportunity to continue to grow our content spend. We are, even in our most mature market, we're less than 10% of share of television time. And we, as we talked about also, we're in very early days. Even in our most mature area, like English language scripted television series, we're only about six years or so into it in some of these categories of programming and certainly parts of the world even earlier. So then we look at what, what's our, you know, as we're growing a healthy business, our revenue is relatively predictable because it's a subscription model. We're looking at what does it uh, take to support that revenue in terms of streaming costs and technology and R&D and support costs. And then there's leftover. We want to build a profitable business over time. You've seen that we're growing our profit margins. But then as we, we've been at least ticking up the last few years, about 300 basis points a year. This year we've committed to 16% operating margins for the business. So when you do that math, there's leftover to spend on content and marketing, yeah. right? And so um, that is it, it, Sounds simple, but in a world where we then um, we then look at okay, are we getting the right impact for that spend? Um, we've you've seen we grew a bunch in our marketing dollars in 2018. We became we we found some efficiencies where that's growing a little bit slower in 2019, um, and so we you know the mix has been a little heavier into content. And then it's about really the tough question is how do we allocate that content sure, spend? Yeah. And for every piece of content, we're looking at how impactful we think that can be in terms of growing our business, in terms of member acquisition, retention, and engagement, and then relative to another piece of content, that relative efficiency. And so that's really how we're measuring it, and we learn as we go. Yeah, and the relative efficiency point being largely tied to sort of engagement, are you getting kind of the viewership for your, for your dollar? Is that how you guys typically Yeah, relative that? in terms of cost. So yeah. how much impact are we getting in terms of acquisition, retention, and engagement, and then for every dollar that 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 it you know sure. it, the the rel relative to another another form of content a piece of content in terms of the cost of driving that impression. Great. And by the way, it, it, there's still judgment. I mean, there's art and science in here, so we try to blend. We're still we are an entertainment company, right? right. So, so, so we we have a point of view based on the metrics and the science, and then you know folks like Ted obviously then have to kind of judge that overlay with their kind of creative instincts. So continuing on the content conversation, you guys, I think, are planning over 130 local language uh, original series this year, foreign language original series. Um, where regionally, if we look around the world, are you guys really leaning in from a content perspective? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely um, expanding our local language originals around the world. It's you know, roughly a doubling you know, order of magnitude from where we were this year, uh, this past year. And it, it's across the board. So there's some areas like the, you know, EMEA region where we've been added longer. 
So still, you know, growth, but but for sure, but um, but but it's off of a larger base. Um, and then there's areas like uh, in in certain parts of the APAC regions, whether it be Japan, Korea, India, where we haven't been at it as as long. So it's probably a little higher growth off of off of a smaller base. But but um, but it's really across the board. I mean, this is a, this is an area that is um, super important to us. When you go back to that video. We are about telling the world stories from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world. Um, we believe that's a fundamental part of our value proposition as we grow our global service. And so I think, um, again, it's frankly quite early days in these non-U.S. regions in terms of continuing to build that content right, market. Right. right. Adam Sandler doesn't actually speak Italian. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we're getting better at localizing the product around the world, too, between subs and dubs. Uh, I want to ask you on the movie side, which is probably, if you look back over the last two to three years, it's got to be at least from a genre perspective where you guys have really ramped up yeah. production. Um, you know, you had a big push last year in the fourth quarter. From a finance and ROI perspective, how do you look at the benefits and cost of these films, particularly these enormous films from a budget perspective like The Irishman, and sort of what's next on the film front for you guys in terms of just scaling that further? Yeah, well, we're super excited about the film category. So as you say, we haven't been at it as long. As long, it's been about four years, and um, uh, I'd say we've come a long way. We've got a long way to go, but but um, we're, we're you know, if there's measures for success, we were, you know, it was nice coming out of this this last Academy Awards. We were the most nominated network with 24 nominations, and you can see our our film slate in Q4 was pretty broad from everything that was. Um, uh, from a two popes and a marriage story to the Irishman to six underground, so some and Dolomite, so pretty from eclectic or to and and uh, to, to just fun action packed. And I think uh, you know, as I say, we're we're pleased with where it's headed. Uh, films are, it's a great consumer offering, both because it's a known value for consumers. People have a, a pretty good understanding of what they're spending to enjoy a film, whether it's in a theater or on demand. So there's there's kind of a, a value proposition to it, and it's also just great experience. It, you know, sometimes you want to really dig into a 10-episode television series, and sometimes you just want an hour and a half movie, and then move on to the next. And so, it's just very a very complementary part of our service. Um, as I say, we're pleased with how that is scaling for us. We're very focused on creative excellence at scale. I think you've seen that in other categories of programming for us, and you're starting to see it in film. And I mean, what you'll see in 2020 is we'll continue to build on that with a um, very kind of both artistic excellence and, and commercial um, sense, increasing commercial um, kind of sensibility to our films. And, you know, this weekend we've got Spencer Confidential, no, spelled differently. It's not with a C, no relation <laughs> to me. But uh, with uh, or Spencer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, neither one of those. Um, but yeah, you'll see more and more of that as we go. So I think. Um, uh, Hopefully, uh, it's going to be a growing and uh, increasingly important piece of the puzzle for us. How important is third-party content for you guys uh, looking forward? Obviously, we always get the questions about friends in the office, but what gives you confidence you guys can let that stuff go and, and keep on growing as, at the levels that people expect? Well, I'd say there's, well, there's third-party second-run content and there's third-party original content. Right. So just to be clear, we, we are... Our, our future is originals, for sure. We've been moving more and more to Netflix originals, which can be licensed from other studios or uh, our own self-produced originals. And um, yeah, we as a business strategy has, have, to some degree, certainly moved more to self-produced originals because you, we can't necessarily count on accessing 
that product from, from third-party studios, but if, if folks are willing to license originals to us, we're, we are always open for business. The licensed second-run content like Friends, um, you know, it's, again, it's, 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 a, it's not the um, kind of future driver of our business, if you will, but, but it is something that, you know, we're still, you know, we still do license second-run content when it works for us. Um, but again, we, we have the benefit of being pretty selective, and, and our business continues to grow through it. I mean, we went from, was it 2011, 2012, when we were purely licensed second-run content, and our business in terms of members has grown globally about 7x, and in the U.S. about three times the size of where we were then. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is a business that now is predominantly Netflix originals without access to that content. So we feel pretty good about being able to grow through it, but there's always going to be some some titles that we'd love to have, and, you know, if it's available to us, we'll, we'll go after it. Let me ask you on the, as we continue sort of down the P&L and talk a little bit more about numbers, you guys have been getting some nice leverage in marketing. Yeah. And I also think you brought in a new CMO maybe mid last year, something like that. Yeah. What, what's allowing you to leverage the marketing line, and, and what's the sort of strategy philosophy on marketing spend going forward? Sure. Well, yeah, so Jackie joined as our new CMO last year. We, you know, Yes, we get leverage, but we're still growing marketing. I mean, we grew marketing a lot in 2018. Our marketing spend grew by almost 70%. In 2019, last year, it still grew 12% year-over-year off of a, a much larger base. Uh, so it's not as if it, it hasn't been growing, yeah. and there's been a lot of learnings along the way. It's just now growing slower than revenue, so it's helping to contribute to our operating margin expansion. Uh, I'd say uh, just generally, uh, one, we're ability to you know, get leverage there because, one, because of those learnings, two, because of the scale of the platform. I mean, the more the, 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 the platform can work for us, I mean, we, we have regular contact with our members and we want the, the service to, um, to enable that discovery. And then, you know, I think three, we're, we're trying to be forward-looking if, if you just kind of do the math on the traditional marketing platforms, uh, those audiences are, are, are declining over time. So in a matter of a handful of years, they could be, you guys do the math, they could be half the size they are today. So we don't want to be overly dependent on those traditional linear channels for uh, marketing to and reaching our consumers. So I think you'll see us continue to get, hopefully, better and smarter at those non-traditional channels of social and owned and earned, um, you know, publishing uh, you know, uh, platforms, whether it be, you know, you know the, the, the obvious, you know, the obvious um, endpoints, but also our own, our own, um, our own channels. Yeah. In the, in the minutes we have left, Seth, I want to spend time on content amortization, sort of the margin story, and then also the free cash flow, yeah. you know, debate that's out there. So how, you know, you've been there now for a little while, obviously you're, you're comfortable with the um, amortization approach, but how, how do you believe, why do you believe that, that viewership is sort of the best way to size up the, the life of a con piece of content on the platform? Um, and as you guys move more and more towards originals, which you own longer, does the average life extend, which would actually further help the margin trajectory of the business? Yeah, I mean, I guess to the last one, I guess in theory it could extend because now we own more and more of our intellectual property, but but yeah, we we amortize at the kind of shorter of the um, the kind of available period of the content or 
the useful life and in, in, in 10 years. And so we're right now we're amortizing inside that that window and and applying our, our as you say our, our viewership curves to inform that amortization. Yeah, you know, so um, I guess the the short of it is we really do tie it to viewership because the viewership as we talked about before that viewership and engagement is the driver of the business right. ultimately. Right. So that's what we're we're matching to and and. Um, obviously, we focus on this, um, uh, you know, especially as a new CFO, I uh, uh, kind of, <laughs> I obsessed over it early on because I wanted to understand our viewership curves and our amortization curves because it's so critical. I'm happy to, to hear that. You know, yeah, yeah, so um, <laughs> hopefully. Um, and, and, um, and, yeah, so we, as I say, we spend a lot of time on it. We revisit it constantly. I think you all be comfortable with the conversations we have internally and with our auditors in terms of ensuring that we, um, that we are very much on this in terms of the, um, you know, the fidelity of our financials. And, and then in terms of actually scaling the free cash flow positive, um, you know, what are the things between now, we've actually seen the free cash flow burn come down, we yeah. expect it to come down this year. What, gets, what helps get the model of free cash flow positive uh, at some point over time? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we've talked about it. We're, you know, we're, we're not rushing to get there. It's, it's kind of a gradual ramp to free cash flow positive, and then, and hopefully that's just the beginning of a highly cash generative uh, business for us that we can continue to reinvest in more great stuff for, for our members. And the way we get there is, uh, you know, you're seeing it through in our financials. First is just scaling the business. So uh, we've been growing recently top line at that, you know, roughly kind of four billion-ish sort of revenue figure plus or minus. And then we've been scaling profitability. Our operating income grew, I think, 62% year over year last year with both percentage margin and absolute margin. Um, so it gives us more profit to convert into and fund uh, that cash investment. And then we're kind of moving meaningfully up the curve in terms of our business model. So what you've been seeing in a lot of the, the, that um, negative free cash flow um, in the last few years is as we were transitioning from that licensed second-run content business where essentially we're paying for that content sort of over the term. So if we license content for five or ten years, we were sort of paying on a cash basis roughly pro rata with the term of that license to then licensed originals, Netflix originals, where we pay um, a bunch of that cash up front on delivery and then the bulk of the rest of it over inside of a year to two-year period. Um, and, then, um, and then to um, self-produced or uh, content that, that where we own the IP where you know, we're typically investing anywhere from a year to, you know, with an animated film four-plus years before it comes on our service. So that was a pretty meaningful pull forward of cash spend for similar content on the service. We're now at the point where the vast majority of our cash content spend is for um, Netflix originals and increasingly for self-produced originals. So we're, we're a long way through that business transition, and we're a larger business, which is why you're starting to see the benefit in the cash flow where – you know, we, we were maximum negative cash flow for us in 2019 at about negative 3.3 billion. We guided to about negative 2.5 billion for 2020, and we'll kind of grad, gradually ramp from there. Okay. Don't want to be any more specific on timing than that, I assume. No, because it, it, I mean, it's not our, it's not our, our primary objective isn't to hit a certain time. It's more to grow in a healthy way while we continue to pursue our strategy. So whether, you know, it takes years or X plus one or two years, um, as long as we're going in the right direction, I'm not sure why we, sh why we should rush versus going after the much larger strategic opportunity that's out there. All right. Anything besides, else besides Love is Blind you'd recommend for the audience on their uh, trip back home? Uh, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, gosh, it depends what your tastes are. That's the good thing about Netflix. I, I tapped into 
Queen Sono last night. So that was uh, our first uh, African original, I think, uh, which is pretty cool. It's that kind of a um, action adventure CIA-ish kind of a thing. Mm. Um, so that was fun. Um, I have been watching a lot of my cheer for others in the unscripted. I think that's kind of fun. I watched Messiah recently. Um, so there's some good stuff out there. There's a lot of cheer fans right. in the audience who just don't want to admit it. Right yeah, now. come on, come on. All right. Um, all right. Well, we're out of time. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Appreciate everybody. It. Thank Appreciate everybody. it.